Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 15. Returning and rest, you shall be saved. And quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And you can link that with what we read in Matthew chapter 11. In the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what's the title of the sermon? Well, it's this, elusive rest, right? Elusive rest. Well, we just read the promise there, didn't we, of, of rest? Yes. And so how many of us enjoy that rest, properly speaking? How many of us have found the depths of that rest? Or is it a little bit elusive? Is it something that you hear as hearing of a far-off country, a distant place? You've, you've heard about this place and how wonderful it is. But it's a bit out of reach. It's some somewhere else. You'd love to be there uh, and you'd love to feel whatever it is that goes with that. But it's just just out of reach and elusive. And you've perhaps shrugged your shoulders and sighed and thought, well, this is as good as it's going to be. I'm a Christian. I believe I'm saved. My sins got heaven before me. So in the meantime, I'll just put up with what we got and live with this and let it all come right in the end. But that rest is elusive, tantalizing. And there is the promise. And it's a very rich promise that we would say that this is good. This is very, very good. And there is something, is there not, more for us here on earth that is from our Lord, that he's not exaggerating it or not promising something that ah, it's going to be a little bit less than that. Big talk, but the reality, ah, we sigh, it's a bit less than that. Never mind, we press on. We love him, we'll do what he wants us to do, we'll, we'll press on. And yet we're feeling there's more to it and it's elusive. And surely, surely when he promised these things, he meant it, and he means us to receive it and live in it. That there is something there, and in a state of the soul, man and woman who's in Christ Jesus, that will then express itself with, with these things, this quietness and this confidence, this returning and rest that will be found in the real life. Not in some ethereal, non-existent life, because this world is always going to have trouble, always going to have trials and tribulations. We're not exempt. It's not going to end tomorrow. And hearing the news we're hearing, we can well believe it's, it's going to get a fair bit more to it yet before the year is out. And the curious context is of this, both in Matthew 11 and here in Isaiah 30, that is actually saying, well, so much is in rebellion against God and actually is fighting against receiving that promise. Isaiah chapter 30, where well, we read all those rather the grim verses, both before it and after it. It's sort of like verse 15 is sandwiched in amongst a whole litany of disasters. 
uh, of people absolutely doing the opposite to what they should be doing and where they would find this returning and rest, this quietness and confidence. Because if we read verse 15 fully, we, we read that it says, but you would not. Amazing. There is a promise of God, but you would not. And all that went before it is that uh, verse 9, Isaiah 30, it's not, not hearing. Yeah, and verse 10, you basically say no to it. You don't want to know. You don't want to hear it. You push it away. Verse 12, you despise this word. My promises, what I have said, I will be to you. You despise it. You think it doesn't mean it. Well, it's a load of rubbish. And you just push it away. And you would not. Again, in verse 16, you, you would not. You say, no, we, we, we're going to do the opposite of what you say. We're finding uh, horses to flee on. And that's actually because in Egypt, and this is where it's about really in that time, in that context, it was putting your hope in Egypt and you're looking to them to get the Assyrians off your back, the neighboring uh, waxing large empire that was threatening. Well, we'll look for help from Egypt. They got the fastest horses. Well, let's go for them. And the Lord said it won't, won't work. Yeah, there'll be some other horses putting in that way that'll be faster. And because I will see to it, you're not going to be able to treat my promises, which of course means treating me in that way. You're not going to be allowed to despise my promises, my word to you and say, oh, get out of the way or cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We just really do not want him here. And I said, well, you're not going to get that. You're going to get my judgment, actually. But there's something so much better than that. And this is what he promises there in returning, in, in forsaking those ways and rest, you shall be saved in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And then if we just looked at Matthew 11, why? What we read before those promises was all about Bethsaida and Chorazin. Woe to them. And woe to Capernaum. Why? What, what have they done? Well, they hadn't listened. They hadn't listened. They hadn't believed it. They hadn't believed what they were being told and the great signs that they were seeing in their midst. It's controversial what the Lord said. Well, if that had happened, all those miracles in Sodom, they'd listened. They were actually in better shape than Bethsaida and Capernaum and, and Chorazin and the other towns and villages. Or, or Tyre and Sidon, those deep, secular, pagan cities, all their gods and all their commerce, and that's all they're interested in. Well, actually, they're in a better state to hear these things and believe them than, than you are, Capernaum. Despite all you've seen, you've just hardened your hearts. And the Lord in Matthew 11, curiously, it says at the beginning of the that second part, verse uh, 25, that Jesus answered and said, this must have been controversial. There must have been people sort of, what? Uh, more, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah and for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for these places? What, what, what's all this about here? And the Lord is having to almost explain to them what's, what's happening here. And he explains, of course, in a way that centers all the attention upon himself. That, that's where the attention of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida should have been upon him. The one who was being 
announced, whose apostles were there uh, preaching perhaps in these towns, or he himself was there. They, They hadn't listened. They hadn't paid attention to him. Of course, he then says some very strong things about himself, that all things have been given to him by his father, that he is the gatekeeper between God and man. That if you want to know the father, well, it's down to the son, actually, to reveal him. And that's a strong statement of the divinity, the deity of Christ, as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. That who is entitled to be the gatekeeper between God and man? Well, only God. And the son takes that authority, says that that is his right to do it. It's all about me, he is saying. Capernaum didn't see that. And then the promise is that if you will see it as being all about me, that I am the center of this, I am the very focus of this, I was the one intended from eternity past to enable sinful human beings to relate to a great God, then there are promises. These are the promises Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, all the towns around by the Sea of Galilee, show their shoulders at or carped at or Say, so, oh, go away, Ad. And just as in Isaiah 30, the people of that day say, oh, we don't want to listen to this. We are going to look to Egypt for our help. And they miss the rest. They miss the promise. There in verse 28, now Matthew 11, spoken by the Lord. Those who labor and are heavy laden, does that qualify any of us for that? Burdened, fed up with ourselves and what we are as sinful people and are oh, just done with trying to make ourselves right before God. Done with that. Well, that's us. He promises rest to such people. But he, he's got a yoke. He's got a way of living. He's got a, a method of proceeding, kind of a rule for life. Oh, but it's so much better than anything that we were living with prior to that. Because the one who gives it is gentle and lowly in heart. And this yoke actually is all part of your rest. It's part of the calming of our hearts, the finding, the very purpose of life, living obedient lives. It's the very center of all of that. But so many, like Capernaum, as in Isaiah chapter 30 said, we would not. We're hard-hearted. We were not willing. And the willingness is not lacking in the Lord Jesus for all that we might hear about him being, as it were, the mediator and the gatekeeper. Yet his lament, Luke 13 and verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. But she said, no. But he said, no, we will flee on horses. But no, we will not be satisfied with what we're seeing. This person is not enough push past him, we want something more, something different, something else. And what will you find? Nothing. Nothing worth the having. Nothing that you'll be able to keep for eternity. And you will miss that promise, that elusive rest. Well, that applies to us as non-Christians. It surely does. What about us as Christians too? That promise, that promise that is made seriously and intentionally meaningfully to us. Are we still thinking we're missing something here? 
We move on. First heading, what is promised here? Well, in returning to him, in being persuaded, if you will, that he is gentle and lowly in heart and that we'll find rest for our souls in him, there is something that he will do in the very heart and the very depth of our being. And you'll need to build into that confidence, quiet, a restfulness, a peace, an inner tranquility that will be ours in all of the trials of life. Because that's where it's for. That's where you see it, actually. It's times of crisis. Who are we in times of crisis? Who am I? Who are you? When crisis comes, because that's when you'll find out whether it was there. Not because you're feeling quite peaceful today or you like that hymn or, you know, that reading's always a great comfort, but then as soon as trouble comes, it's gone. No, it's for then, actually. It's, it's for when Assyria is pressing down upon the people of Jerusalem. It, it's for that time when you're burdened and heavy laden and there's great disquiet in your soul. It's for then. And it's meant to be seen then. An inward state of soul which is evidenced when it really counts. When there really is a demand upon us, something within is there to be able to respond to it in. A strength, a a confidence, a hope, even a joy, peace. Peace, as I say, that isn't passivity, that isn't a non-doing of things. It may require us to do an awful lot of things, actually. It may require of us a situation that we've, we've got to be busy people. But we're bringing something to that which has been put in there and which is there to be found when we need it, when the demands and the challenges are upon us. So it's not passivity. It, it's not something weird. I find myself using that word an awful lot because... Christianity it seems to generate so much weirdness. There are an awful lot of weird things out there, weird goings-on and weird ideas and weird experiences and weird teachers. Well, you probably look at me and say, well, take a look in the mirror, my friend. You know, there's the weirdest of the lot. Uh, well, I leave that to your kind judgment. But I say there's a lot of strange ideas out there, strange ideas about piety. That, that it is as though we must detach, even desensitize ourselves, be removed from it, just pass through this hurting, needy world. We must unmoved by it. And that's the evidence of the peace, that we, we just almost don't, basically don't feel anything. Or oh, that what we do feel is this little warm glow inside that is almost impervious to the world around us. It's not that. Not some passionless serenity. No, it's something that's felt, known, lived out, expressed in a very busy world, in a very challenging world at the moment, a very oppositional world, particularly as we see it mounting here in the West. It's there when there's chaos and panic and crisis everywhere else. Well, it's not a feeling, as though that there's an elusive feeling out there. If we just capture that feeling, Maybe you once felt a feeling, and you rather like that feeling. You think, well, if I could just have that again, all would be well. I say feelings, and nothing wrong in the feelings in themselves there. 
but they are often sort of time dated. They are specific to an event, a period in your life and in mine. And if we're trying to recover those, we're trying to recover something that was okay then. But now we're different people. God's matured us, taken us on. The things we've learnt, we, we, we've been deepened and we respond differently. At least that's as I will understand it. But it is something that will be felt. It'll be something that's known a strength, joy, and assurance, confidence, a peace within. A real rest, a stability. When everything is being shaken and there's crisis everywhere, that there's a stability. And we know who we are, whom we love, whom we serve. We know where our treasure is. We're assured of it. And we, well, almost in the words of you see around, keep calm and carry on. That we're able to proceed in this life and to be able to hold our own in it. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, you may be familiar with him, wrote in a different generation. And so some of his expressions and words are of that generation, but it still conveys pretty well into our present culture. And he said this about this verse, actually. Would we be strengthened to do what is required of us and to bear what is laid upon us? He says, it must be in quietness and in confidence. We must keep our spirits calm and sedate by a continual dependence upon God and his power and his goodness. We must retire into ourselves with a holy quietness, suppressing all turbulent and tumultuous passions and keeping the peace in our minds. And we must rely upon God with a holy confidence that he can do what he will and will do what is best for his people. And this will be our strength. It will inspire us with such a holy fortitude as will carry us with ease and courage through all the difficulties we may meet with. It wasn't a man who was kind of in a different era when there were no difficulties. Matthew Henry, well, you don't know our name, you don't know who we are and well, he does, if you could put it like that. He was living in exactly the same tumultuous times as we live in. And that was what he was looking for in that verse, that calmness, that ability to, interesting in the word, retire into ourselves, to, to be able to inquire of our soul and find there's something there, that there is a peace there that there are convictions and assurances that we have there. What do we have, friends? What do I have? What, when we perhaps look inward, when we do a, a gauge on ourselves and check ourselves out, what do we find? Second heading, being persuaded. Hmm. Being persuaded, being convinced, being assured. That's the key here, isn't it? I think that if we are assured of what God has revealed of himself, assured of what we're going to observe around the communion table, if those things are our confidence, if we have been persuaded and all the arguments against the existence of God and all the arguments against the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross and of his resurrection, I found an answer that we have been able to face those down and move on, then there is something there for us being persuaded, not of kind of 
way beyond our pay level kind of spiritual truths, not things that are inaccessible to us because God never intended us to have those things, but things actually know that are very accessible, very much in reach here in the Bible, not once, not twice, but again and again, there's the cross, there's this glorious Christ, four gospels worth. Again and again, we are presented with him. Ah, Being more persuaded about him, there is something of what we need here to find that rest for the soul, to find that which we need when the crises come and the challenges come and the news comes, you've got some bad health or some bad news on the way, that there's, there's something happening within your family and you're having to respond to that, being persuaded about him. Now, people are persuaded about many things. They are. People really are committed to causes. They, they really are. And those commitments will lead them, if necessary, to die for those causes. They will. They die to defend their nation. We see that in Ukraine, don't we, there? Just how committed is the love of the people for their country and how they've surprised President Putin and surprised quite a few other people by the way in which they have risen to the challenge and have have summoned each other to be strong and, and courageous. Astonishing. People die for ideas. Well, if you can call your nation an idea, perhaps it's a bit better than that, but, oh, I don't know, communism. Yeah, people have died because they believe in communism uh, and were willing to pay for the realization of that elusive dream with their own blood. Amazing. We have to at least salute their conviction and the depth of that conviction and the sincerity of that conviction, even though it may have been a wrong conviction to hold. People go to prison for causes they believe in. People of other religions go to prison because of what they believe in or their particular take on their particular holy book and prepared to suffer the consequences of their belief. So many causes that people somewhere are persuaded of in the very depths of their being. That's the thing, isn't it? The depths of our being is somewhere within, almost indefinable, but so important, the real you, the real me, who we are, in our core beliefs, those those deep-seated attitudes. And there could be people with some pretty deep-seated attitudes and some pretty firm convictions that you and I might say, oh, that's totally wrong, or that's not worth all of that. But they think it is, and they're prepared to suffer for those things, even to die for those things. Here's a little bit of an aside. I offer this thought that very often, though, there's something missing. Very often, though, there is something missing in those things. So they, they may be deeply persuaded. But how about this? As is, I think, often the case, that those convictions need help in order to be kept going. People turn to alcohol, maybe. Or they need some sexual pleasure to kind of keep themselves on track in that, to, to provide something extra. To, to enable them to sort of keep on with their convictions and to survive the things they're doing. I almost offer this thought too, that false religions or violence, young men who quite like action and doing well, it offers them a bit of an outlet here, if you will, that you can be violent, but that's okay. 
But that's actually mandated by God. You're doing God's will and you're being violent. What a happy bringing together of, of, of things. Doing God's will, it actually fits in quite well with what you enjoy. Or, or that they're sustained here and, well, religion sustains its young men with this and sends them off to kill themselves and lots of other people in the process with the idea of sort of unfettered sexual gratification in some paradise to come. And that sustains and it needs that sort of stuff. Why reading about, you know, some of the high, hijackers of those planes and the 9-11, uh, disaster there in the United States. And oh, they were having to kind of psych themselves up to be able to do those things. And there's a fair bit of goings on and looking at things perhaps they shouldn't have been looking at. Some of them there to, to sort of buoy them up, to keep them kind of on track with that. Because that's what it needs. That's what it needs. There's not a calm or a peace there. There's something missing in their conviction that requires something, some outlet, some, some input of, 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 of something to sometimes perhaps desensitize their consciences or give them the proverbial Dutch courage. Atheists and humanists, well, they, they like us to think that they are, well, what are they? Intellectually fulfilled atheists and the kind. Except they seem so often to be very angry people. <laughs> they, they seem to be very often angry people. Very opinionated, very noisy, very aggressive. They, they, they need to express themselves in extreme ways. There's something else going on there. They don't strike me as being very calm and quiet in their spirit. They don't seem to be able to react to what they regard as a pestilence, you know, Christian faith there, with calm. But they're a bit embarrassing, really, in their stridency and, and the way in which they, they follow through with what they're doing. Or that they have with their ideas something else, something entirely else, something rather nasty and rather ugly, that they may actually have quite a lot of hate, let's put it like that, for their fellow human being. That Richard Dawkins there has been on record saying that certain children in the womb, if they've got some disability, get rid of them, abort them, do us all a favour, get rid of them. Monstrous, hideous. And yet he said that, and well, I suppose his intellectual fulfilment allows him to be a little honest at times with what he says and his real views are, that he you could understand Hitler, what, what he was onto with uh, his extermination of those deemed to be unfit. Horrendous, ghastly. And that's living at the same time as this intellectual fulfillment. Well, we'd have to say that doesn't amount for anything worth having. There is agitating within such inhumanity, such cruelty, such viciousness. Well, you may have seen just a uh, in these last few days, that the uh, surrealist artist, uh, Salvador Dali, that his stock has taken a, a bit of a hit there. Cast my mind back to my student days, and so many students had their Salvador Dali pictures there. Well, he could be a victim soon of cancel culture, given how certain things he wrote back along have, well, basically there saying, well, other peoples and people groups there will Better off enslaving them, get rid of them there. They're a bit of a nuisance and a pestilence. We should, you know, be a sort of superior people and just sort of nurture those superior people. 
and a vicious antagonism against Christianity. Interesting, isn't it? There it was, came out, couldn't stop himself, poor man. Poor man, couldn't stop himself. Well, right, so I get the, the platform, the man's dead, he can't answer himself there. I think we'd have some questions for him if he was alive. Hatred of Christianity, want to annihilate it. What's that? That's not a very peaceful, not a very calm, thought through kind of statement. And so many of these people, what they're persuaded of in the depth of their being, there's something missing. There's something that's not giving them clarity, even rationality, that is robbing them of humanity or is making them very disagreeable people, very opinionated, very angry, very noisy people. What are we persuaded of? Well, my final heading is this, only only God can give true rest. Only God can actually offer to the soul all that we might need without anything missing. The package does not need alcohol. You won't need illicit sexual pleasure and a pornography on the side or an outlet for violence or an opportunity to express your inner anger against different people or situations or religions. You don't have any of that with him. And you have it because revealed to the soul and satisfying us in that deepest place where we are to be persuaded of these things is such an overpowering, compelling revelation of his glory, beauty, excellence, gentleness and lowliness, what he is offering to you and to me, trusting in his shed blood, reliant upon the cross for our salvation, the one who died upon the cross, and seeing in him so, so much that feeds the soul and satisfies the soul, that we draw into our very inner being, and which is then captured there. Then, when the evil day comes, and the challenges come, and suddenly the day has changed, we're having to respond to something completely unforeseen, there's something there to fall back on, or someone to fall back on. Him. The one who invites you and me to come to him, as we were thinking the other week, follow me, not follow an idea or follow a set of rules or come to these rules here or come to this sort of set of requirements here. No, come to me. Puts himself right at the center of it all. Unabashed, unashamed. He is the son of God. He is able to make those claims, make those statements and offer what he promises there. Make good on it. You have his word, the word of the son of God. He says, come to me. And you will find rest for your souls. You will find something that the world cannot give you, cannot give me. Even though people may die for causes out there and put us a bit to shame. Could I die? Could I give up my life for my convictions? Well, there's a question we ask ourselves, well, those people are. Yeah, but there's something missing. There's so much of what they are and what they're doing. Something missing in their actions and the quality of those actions. Something missing in the center of their being, who they are the quality of the human being that they actually have become. And we are promising so much more than that. We are told that we are going to have to undergo some pretty serious surgery, take off some yokes that we may be carrying that we're not even aware of. 
so often happens in that inner being there, in that core place where the real you and the real me is to be found. There can be some pretty odd ideas, pretty unspiritual ideas that are there. And, well, they may have served us in some fashion there and helped us get through life a bit. But they now need the Lordship of Christ upon them. They now need sanctifying, changing. Now needs the grace of God to be brought to bear upon the people that we are, to to make us more rounded, to, to make us deeper, and to have Christ more center stage in everything that we are answering our guilt, being our sure relief, bringing us that help for the very centre of our being that will then show when the time of trial comes, when we were able to make decisions more clearly, when we're able to evaluate more clearly, evaluate character, evaluate our own character, our own motives, the motives of others, whatever it might be, and respond appropriately, but with compassion and with grace bring something of the fullness, and the beauty and the maturity of Christ to the people that we are and that we're becoming. But we need to be convinced, don't we, friends? And so often the thing we need to be most convinced about is the most simple of Christian truths, that God is love, and that the one who speaks tenderly means it, that it's not just words, 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 but comes from the very centre of his being. That's who he is. Mercy, reaching out to the needy, to the strugglers. Mercy to those who know the game's up, that we're bankrupt morally, spiritually, that we need help. And even as Christians, we can say we're bankrupt morally and spiritually too. We've been running on something else here. And we need him. We need him more in here. We need to have more of the richness of his being, who he is, to have his mind and to have his will. And to know that we are loved, that he loves us with an everlasting love. And it's the same place we always go to be convinced of it. It's the communion table. It's that sacrifice, isn't it? It's a giving up of himself fully, freely, willingly, entirely. All of it, his dignity, his honour, gave it all up there. His, his own comfort, his own ease. Uh, any entitlement there to have peace in his soul, well, he, he surrendered all that up and he would allow it himself to enter into deep, deep distress, deep, deep sorrow, to feel what the weight of sin requires of, of humankind and to make that his own, to have to face and to endure and to embrace it, to, to willingly accept it. That was his, and he didn't do it for himself there. I can reliably inform you he had no reason for himself to have to do that. But he had reason to do it to save you and me from our sins as an act of supreme, supreme love. And that remains to this day. And the cross will not change, our communion table will not change until he returns, because he hasn't changed. And there he is at the right hand of God, not remote, actually. He's not disappeared from view behind the clouds that the disciples watched him go. He sent his Holy Spirit, and that's not shortchanging us. That's him again. He's bringing all of the fruits of Christ's character and of his love and of his mercy and is insisting that you and I believe it and accept it. Live in the good of it and pursue holiness 
reliant upon it and look to be the people we are doing things, making decisions, having to do this, do that, responsibilities that we have. Yes. But with this as the, the core foundational aspect of who we are, assured and convinced in his love, resting in it, confident in it, our hearts quieted in it, not assailed by doubts, not uh, kind of chipping away at the cross or kind of demolishing the person of Christ before our eyes, you know, doubts and unbelief just destroying him. But no, actually making him live more, <laughs> making the cross bigger, making the one who died upon the cross greater, and that we are drawn all the more to him. Friends, that's the Christ who offers to us in returning and rest that will be saved, in the sense delivered, helped, brought through times of trial and crisis, giving strength to us that we lack, don't we? Strength to us because we are resting in him, quieted in all of the murmurings of our soul and all the unbelief and the pride and the covetousness and calm and under his lordship now that we can pursue this very busy, very challenging life, assured of these things. Why the prayers that there are in Ephesians, that the apostle Paul prayers, as I finish, they might be good for us to know as well, mightn't they, and believe. What's on offer? First chapter of Ephesians, and just reading from verse 15, Paul says there, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease give thanks for you, making mention of you my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit, wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. He goes on there to speak about the mighty power it is a work in us that also brought the Lord Jesus back from the dead. Or, I finish, Ephesians 3, verses 14 and following that we read there. For this reason, again, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a promise. Let's pray that for each other. Let's pray that for ourselves. And maybe then, that rest won't be so elusive after all.